from the Mississippi Humanities Council, you're listening to Ideas on Tap. Monthly panel discussions on issues facing Mississippians today. Hey everybody, it's Caroline Gillespie from the Humanities Council. Welcome to Ideas on Tap. This program took place on June 19th at Offbeat in Midtown Jackson. We had Garrett Lee as moderator, Anna Hall, Jennifer West, and Travis Crabtree as panelists. The program is Ideas on Tap, Safety First, and discussed safety in communities and how we feel safe as people in our neighborhoods. Hello, hello, hello. Hey, everyone. Thanks for coming out tonight for Ideas on Tap. Hey, babe. Um, all right. So we uh, had sat down and talked after we did the last one at Hallamals um, that I moderated with uh, Young Venom and Ginger to come up with some new ideas for the summer. And so we tossed around some ideas. And as Caroline said, uh, this one comes across a little bit more abstract. And we're going to kind of just see where it goes is kind of the idea with this general idea of safety. Um, and try it towards the end probably to get into some kind of deeper aspects of it. Before we get started, though, I want to go down the table here, starting to my left, and have everyone just introduce yourself and tell us just a little bit about what you do and maybe what brought you here. So if you don't mind starting. Uh, my name is Anna Hall. Can you all hear me? Yeah. Good. Okay. Uh, Anna Hall. I work with League of Women Voters as their voter services vice president, and I'm on Jackson Council PTA board, and uh, I have three kids that I'm raising in Jackson, all school age, and so I like to think of myself as a very involved and engaged parent in public schools. I'm Travis Crabtree. I am representing the Jackson Planning Department, the long-range planning team. Uh, my fiance and I, Salam Rita, just moved here three months ago or four months ago from Detroit, Michigan. We own a design interdisciplinary design practice um, in Jackson, also an event venue down the street um, called the Eco Shed, which we are hosting an event on Saturday, uh, which is going to be summer camp. Shameless plug. I like it. I like it. Um, my name is Jennifer West. I am the Midtown Neighborhood Association president. Um, I'm also the vice president of the Jackson Association of Neighborhoods. I have one daughter that has gone through JPS, and I have a four-legged daughter named Sweetie Pie. So, Sweetie Pie. Sweetie Pie. Nice. And that's basically it about me. All right, great. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Um, so how I typically do this is uh, I have some questions that Caroline sent me that we had discussed ahead of time. So I'm just going to throw those out, and I'm just going to – this first question is kind of just to get us going. Um, and then I'm going to ask it, and whichever one of you guys wants to go for it, I'm not going to ask anybody directly. And we'll just work off of that, and then we'll see uh, where we go from there. So uh, just to get it going, kind of in the general sense, um, and one thing I will say is we're not – quite yet going to define the word safety because we're going to look at it in different arenas you know or hopefully we'll get to that so um, just very generally speaking the question is what makes us feel safe both as individuals and as a community and what is the importance of that so one of you has to be brave and take the question first there we go good job good job we have a leader that's awesome I think I probably say this way too much I harp on it uh, to an extreme um but I cannot stress the importance of listening enough. What makes you feel safe is being listened to and being heard. That's what makes you feel safe in your relationships. That's what makes you feel safe in your work environment. And that's certainly what would make our students feel safe in their schools is to know that they are heard and they are listened to. I would say that safety to me uh, is 
as a planner is living without the anxiety of, of being within an environment um, that makes you feel unsafe, uh, whether it be people or vehicles or other things that maybe make more anxiety or draw more anxiety from you. Uh, so that, I think that that's maybe the more, I don't know the term that I would use for it as a designer. Um, safety for me would be what's your comfort level, uh, whether it be in your home with your family, whether it be with your neighbors, whether it be in your city or whatever you um, are, are around on a daily basis. Um, I think that it can go very safe. It can go very extreme depending on who you are and how you may have been raised or the experiences in your life. So that's what I look at as far as safety is concerned. What, um, as far as like within a community, so with the comfort level kind of idea, um, how do you think we can foster that sense? Is there like ways that people can discuss those comfort levels with each other within a community, be it a neighborhood or something like that? Since I know you work in, you know, with the neighborhood association and stuff, what do you think about that? Um, yes, you definitely can do it. I think that sometimes we tend to stay in silos. We need to get out of those silos sometimes because we do need help from someone whether it be from the police, whether it be from your neighbor, whether it be from your parents or somebody in the community, whether it be your children's teachers, uh, students, anybody, you need help. So it's best to have those conversations with people that, number one, you have a level of trust with, number two, that you feel that can give you sound advice that may be someone that you look up to that can, can, can foster that for you or if you are a very spiritual person, you take that to your church. You get that from your church community to be ultimately to be able to have those conversations, to put it out there for the public to get some positive feedback and the negative feedback that may come with it as well because it, you are going to get both sides of it. It's not going to always be sunshine and rainbows. It's going to be some dark days, and you have to take the good with the bad. Nice. All right, Travis, I'm coming back to you real quick. Um, since you have the... Um, the joy of representing the city of Jackson today, and you said the word transportation, so that's on you. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so all right, but for real, like when it comes to safety, you know, we'll get into like crime and perception stuff like that. But one of the I think overarching things on people's mind here in the city is just the sheer safety of driving your car around mm -hmm. town, right? And it's a way more complex issue than we can, you know, get into here with, you know, you, you know that being planning and all. But um, do you hear things from people or is there, you know, just this concept of getting around safely and how that impacts maybe communities and people's perceptions? Maybe we can jump off of this with a perception idea. But I am very interested in the idea of just, you know, getting transport, transported safely around town. So can you say anything to that from the city standpoint? Sure. Um, well, Jackson is an automobile-dependent city where we are all using a single single occupancy vehicle to get around everywhere mostly. We have a, a transportation system that we're working on uh, to try to fix. Um, but, I mean, a lot of the infrastructure issues, I mean, it's designed around the automobile and we at the planning office, Dr. Kumar and the long range planning team are really trying to introduce more streetscape infrastructure that is pedestrian oriented, um, that makes the city a little bit more pedestrian friendly and um, like 
eliminates or doesn't eliminate but helps to um, decrease the amount of automobile sort of presence in the city. Um, by decreasing some of some of those things, we're going to save money on some of the infrastructure cost of repaving these potholes that everyone's really upset about. Um, but reducing some of those, and there, there's a lot of design decisions that are uh, really poorly that have been poorly made that we're really trying to enhance um, to for the for the person, not necessarily for the automobile. Um, so, like an example, I guess, of that is. We're about to work on this uh, one-line corridor, which is this corridor stretching from Jackson State to Fondren, which is a five-mile corridor where we're working on trying to make it a pedestrian-oriented, enhanced urban design that accompanies uh, pedestrians, buses, a, a bike-sharing system, and bicycles. Um, as well as other sorts of modes of infrastructure, but to really make it safe. I don't know if you guys have like seen the hospital in front of the hospital and watched the workers from one side of the parking lot to try to cross to the hospital. It's like watching you know chickens trying to cross the road, and you know it's such a danger. And someone told me the other day that someone passed away or got hit several years ago um, and, and died. So, I mean, I think I'm, I'm taking this expansive view of what safety is. Uh, vehicles are definitely one of those things that make us feel a little bit more insecure about uh, the environment that we live in. Um, so we're, we're taking this one-line li one corridor and trying to make it more people-friendly and pedestrian-friendly. Um, there's also this idea of that there's this planner um, in the 50s and 60s who was Jane Jacobs. I don't know if you guys know who that is. Uh, she wrote this book called Great American Cities. She wasn't a planner. She was a writer. But she's sort of a planner. Uh, and in New York City, uh, whenever you know there were a lot of moves being made in New York City, and one of her ideas was having eyes on the street and people being outside uh, enhances safety, ultimately. Uh, and right now we are super segregated in all of our individual structures inside of our houses. We go to this destination, to this destination. There's no streetscape life in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, so we are trying to get people out on the street, uh, and we are thinking about the climate <laughs> because climate is definitely an issue here, um, and, and trying to get people out on the street. Um, so yeah, great, thanks. All right, I'm Anna. I'm going to bounce to you real quick. Um, Jennifer mentioned something about, you know, we were talking about communities, about schools and churches, and you mentioned your work with, you know, with schools, with your kids, you know, the PTA and stuff. Um, something that I think has become very prevalent recently in the discussion is the safety at schools with what's been going on with school shootings and things like that. So um, do you have any experience, like, with the PTA group you work with and everything? Uh, how is that being addressed within the schools, like safety? And I, I'm thinking of... What do people think about more police in the schools and like guns on the teachers and stuff like that? I know it's kind of a broad topic, but how is that discussed within like the educational like side of things? I think you can get pretty anecdotal when you start asking people about uh, supplying guns to teachers. You're going to have various teachers have various opinions. Um, I certainly feel like I live in a bubble, and that opinion is usually the same. Um, but for the most part. I think that the issue of school shootings and, and gun control falls into the category of a national conversation that we're having, and that's one aspect of it. 
the immediate conversation that we're having within JPS as far as school safety revolves more around our, our physical buildings, how we deal with discipline, uh, how we address students, and uh, how we train our teachers. And that's mostly our focus. We need to really look at just the infrastructure of our schools right now. Are those school buildings safe places for the students to be? Are they places where the teachers feel a sense of control? The, just having doors that shut and lock you know, would be a real boon to school safety. So, and also just the way that we deal with discipline. We do have students who can be disruptive, students who are having difficulty in school. How are we dealing with those students? Rather than just blanket policies, we need to have some really in-depth conversations about how to make all of the students within our schools feel like school is a safe place to go and where they can have their work done and where the teachers can get their job done and, and everyone feels comfortable. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's definitely one of the things in Jackson, would, that word infrastructure comes up all the time, not just with roads and stuff, but with the actual the school buildings themselves, you know. So, um, Jennifer, I want to come back to you um, because I want to kind of get this discussion going because I think that when it comes to Jackson and people talk about safety and then we can get in, you know, thinking about crime and stuff, and one of our questions here that Caroline sent me um, has to do with perceptions of safety. And there's this perception... Um, from people, especially on the outside of the city, that Jackson is like this lawless hellscape, right? That, you know, you shouldn't come into unless it's Thursday night in Fondren or something, right? So, um, but I find that interesting because there's people have this perception that on any given night you shouldn't come in the city at all unless there's a whole bunch of other people around that make you feel safe or whatever. So, but those perceptions also affect everyone in every part of the city and stuff like that. So um, just from a personal standpoint or from the uh, neighborhood standpoint, um, what do you see about perceptions? Do, do you think that people's perceptions that you talk to within the neighborhoods line up with realities? Or what do you guys, and I'll go down and have each one of you speak to this, but I think perceptions are very important. What are those perceptions? How can we fight those perceptions if they need to be fought? And what, what impact does that have on the communities as a whole, the way that people perceive us? That's a lot to answer. Um, <laughs> yeah. You have three sentences. <laughs> um, I guess for me, personally, um, I, I use my personal experience. I'm not originally from Jackson. I'm originally from Greenwood. I came to Jackson in about 2004. Um, Growing up, Jackson was the place to come, whether it was going for shopping, anything that you wanted to do, to come visit the museums, educational, whatever it was, Jackson was the place. And then when I actually moved here, um, I, I consider myself Switzerland. I try to stay neutral on a whole lot of things. So I don't let what other people tell me or the ideas of what somebody may have said, I try to experience it for myself and get my own views. Um, when I came to Jackson, um, I was also still growing up. So I was kind of jaded by certain things, thinking, oh, I could trust certain people. But after spending time here, talking to different people, being in different neighborhoods, um, when you tell someone, oh, you live here, oh, don't live there, okay? But I spent time there. I've met the people there. Those ideas that you're talking about may be 10, 15 or 20 years old of a certain perception. If you have not lived in that neighborhood, not have experienced that neighborhood, or not have spent any time in that neighborhood on your own and got your own idea of it, um, you don't know what that neighborhood, that city, that community, 
whatever it is is about. Yes, I'm also to a certain extent that yes, things will happen. They happen here, they can happen in Memphis, they can happen anywhere. But you have to take the initiative, number one, to step outside of your personal comfort zone and quit talking about stuff and actually doing it. You may not be able to do a lot, you can do simple things. If you live on a street where there's a bunch of kids, you know, they don't have to, you know, always be the babysitter. But when you sit outside, just like if you have kids, be concerned about those kids that are in the neighborhood. If you see them doing something wrong, go back to, you know, I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister keeper. If there are kids out there, be concerned about those kids. They might not respond to you, but if they see that you care, they may ultimately make the effort to say, okay, she cares. She, If something goes wrong, I can go to her house. That's a safe place where I can go. That's a safe person that I can talk to. There are so many people out there that people, just from the perception of, may not open up to or talk to or greet or whatever. Just give people the opportunity, and then you might, you know, it may change for you. Right. Do you, uh, just from your work in the neighborhood, do you feel... You know, over the t- over time, do you f- you know it's the whole idea of like it takes a village, right, yes. within a community. Um, have you seen that change over the years? Um, just maybe even where you grew up and, uh, compared to here, or something because that's something that I see less and less where people seem less invested in their communities as they kind of withdraw, kind of into themselves and into the internet and things like that. Because um, I don't have kids and I'm not a kid anymore, but it doesn't feel like it used to, where people kind of looked out for each other and stuff. Have you seen that change, or what? Did, how does that look within the neighborhood you work in? Um, well, in Midtown, I think it's just a little bit different because we have different opportunities here. Mm-hmm. I can't say that for other neighborhoods because I don't know what their, their their makeup is. Right, right. But for our neighborhood, I'll give an example. You can start out at Good Sam's around the country, which is a Montessori school. We mm-hmm. also have Heinz uh, um, Head Start. Right. We also had an elementary school here at Brown. We had we have we had two middle schools here. We had Rowan at one point. We have Mid South Public Charter School. Mm-hmm. We don't have a a high school in the neighborhood, but we have one adjacent. Uh, Lanier, we also have Murrah on the other side. Right. Um, then you have college, you have Millsap College, you have Bellhaven, you have Jackson State. So a kid could actually grow up in the center of this city and for this particular neighborhood, stay in this neighborhood all the way up to college. Right. If you're looking at a job in the healthcare industry, you have Baptist, UMC. If you have uh, uh, want to work in federal government, you're right in the capital of things. There are opportunities here that post, most people don't look at if you're a creative person. We have an arts district in the neighborhood. Right. So those are opportunities to open a person's perspective. We have a, we have a DHS office in this neighborhood. We have other things that um, when I first moved here, I, I, I tell people I'm 15 minutes away from everything yeah. in this city. Uh, there's no excuse for a person in this city to say there's nothing to do, nowhere to go. Uh, it doesn't cost you a dime for half of the stuff that you want to do. It's just that you, as an individual, have to take that initiative to go out there and find it. If you've got a smartphone, there's no excuse for you not to be able to do anything in this city. Hmm. Um, 
Travis jump on that, uh, talking about the perception thing. And then I also want to say that the planning department, you guys have been doing a whole lot of really good stuff with the like downtown concert series. And you mentioned earlier trying to get people onto the street, right? Um, so one the thing you were saying, Jennifer, because one of the big perceptions of Jackson is there's nothing to do. And that's kind of built off the narrative that this place is too dangerous for there to be anything to do. That's a piece of it, you know? So um, speak to your ex- you know experience in the planning department a little bit about that. Maybe mention some of the cool things you guys are doing um, as far as breaking the perceptions down a little bit. Sure. Um, I'm going to give the Detroit example because this is the city that I know best. I know Jackson probably the second best. Uh, Obviously, the media is driving these perceptions, and it's juicier to take on a story about, you know, whatever it might be, a a shooting or whatever, versus Jeff Good opening up um, Refill Cafe in the western side of Jackson that has workforce training. I think that there's so much opportunity here in Jackson um, to be to make an impact more than you could make an impact in the metro suburban area. Um, there's so many more challenges, uh, so you have to be super creative about uh, what those you know how how you can approach some of this stuff. Um, and you're just so much more influential. So I don't know. I, I think at the planning department, we're taking on a lot of these social, economic, environmental challenges and trying to be super creative about how we can do a lot with a little. Uh, there's this thing called tactical urbanism, uh, where you basically create these interventions um, in urban space that uh, require little investment but have a high impact and an example of that is Times Square in New York City where uh, Broadway ran through the center of Times Square and they eventually just painted the surface of, of Broadway and created a big public plaza because that's what you know broad, or Times Square really is a people's place. I mean there's tons of people going into Times Square. Um, so we're, we're trying to do you know here in Mississippi and in Jackson we don't have that many resources so we're trying to maximize um, you know the outcome with little resources that we have Um, we've got to get better about communicating with the public about what we're doing in the city the planning department has been so disconnected from the public for so long Uh, on June 30th we are having a downtown design dialogue to talk about the nine acre site in front of the convention center um, where we are trying to uh, create a space in front of the convention center that is not a private space, but 50% of it is a public space, and it's going to be open space uh, to try to make downtown you know, happen because there is no street life. Everyone is in their buildings, and everyone is, comes there for you know, their office or their business. They eat lunch. They leave. So we're really, we're focused, the long-range planning team is really focused on downtown right now, which is like a sort of popular strategy in urban redevelopment with a lot of different cities. It happened in Detroit. Uh, Dan Gilbert came downtown in Detroit and did a few things as far as, you know, outside and making it cool. Um, so it's, it's just like creating those little catalysts all throughout the city. Um, you know, we're working in some neighborhoods right now and trying to do some neighborhood planning. But it, those little catalytic um, moves that you can do to activate um, the space and make it cool and, and get population to come in and get people talking 
is going to be super influential and help combat some of the negative things that the media is going to be saying. Thanks. Um, Anna, I'm going to come to you now and to the question of perception, because um, I've had you speak on JPS stuff a couple times already. Uh, I don't know that there's a better thing to talk about in Jackson as far as perception goes than Jackson Public Schools and people's <laughs> perception of it, right? Because, I mean, just let I me mean, look at the city, and you look at the way that the city's broken down and the m- amount of high schools we have, just the size of the district that Murrah serves, right? It serves basically wherever... I mean, I'm just going to say this, we're going to have to get comfortable in a minute, but pretty much anywhere where white people live, Murrah serves that community because all those kids go to private school, right? Because of all the perception. Right. Um, and it literally serves what probably five high schools should serve if everybody mm-hmm. was going to JPS. So, but perception of that is a huge thing. And people's perception of, I have to get my kids, maybe I'll send them to McWillie, but I got to get them out to the suburbs or do a private school. So, um, I don't know exactly how to frame the question, but I mean, what, what sense do you have the way that the perception of JPS affects its ability to do what it needs to do or what it's supposed to do? I think I actually have sort of a broad answer to that, because not, not just with JPS, but with Jackson as a whole. I, I don't know how many of y'all grew up in Jackson or you were in Jackson in the 80s and the 90s. You... It was the same. Crime is no worse now than it was back then. And, and there was a huge uptick across the country in, in the 80s and the 90s in crime. And, and it was probably, I would say, a little bit worse. And so now people say, oh, crime in Jackson is so bad. And I think, well, I grew up here and there's absolutely no difference whatsoever. But what you have to remember is it takes 20 years to tear a city's reputation down. It's going to take 20 years to build that reputation back yeah, up. Two generations, both ways. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So it takes me living on the west side of Fondren and raising my kids where nobody else I know would ever raise their kids. And those kids growing up in that neighborhood and going to those schools and meeting those kids and then deciding where they're going to live and where they're going to have kids and where they're going to send them to school. It's just going to take time. But I think as far as changing the perception goes with with JPS, we all know, you know, you get out there and you talk it up and you you say how good it is. Get out there and start working with JPS. Get out there and start working in your community. But it all boils down to presence. I just want to jump on what Jennifer said. It's taking that stoop back and sitting out on the stoop and having kids running up and down the street and meeting all of those kids so that everyone who drives by at 90 miles an hour on your street because it needs speed bumps. <laughs> we have natural speed bumps. Um, yeah, I know. They are natural speed bumps. Domino's is going to fix that, though. Don't worry I about. throw them out there. They're going to throw old pizzas in The numbers too. are dropping on our street. Um, but but being out there and being present is is probably the best thing you can do to change the perception of the city and you can change the perception of the schools. Because when someone comes to you and says, you know... The first time I went to Lanier, someone said to me, don't die. <laughs> and wow. I, was, I was getting on a school bus with a, with a bus filled with Lanier High School students of the most enchanting, delightful, fantastic students I had ever been around. But even people who grew up in Jackson think I would never step foot in a school like Lanier. I would never step foot in a school like Forest Hill. Forest Hill used to be this, and now Class it's of this. 97. But truthfully... <laughs> They don't know because they haven't yeah. stepped foot in Forest Hill. So you just get out there, you spread the good word, and you be present in Jackson. And that's going to be the most powerful thing we can do to change the perception. Yeah. Um, I just want to say I really like what you said about the 20-year thing because, um, you know, thinking generationally, like thinking let's just round off to 10 years per generation. Um, 
uh, I was like you, born and raised here in Jackson. I've been gone. I've come back what three times now. I think I've left and come back. So um, Forest Hill, South Jackson. But I was you know here for what I consider both phases of white flight in Jackson, which was early, mid, late 90s, like, through most of the 90s, and then again in the early 2000s, like, when Madison really started, like, popping off, you know, so um, I saw the per- what the perceptions meant each one of those times. I really like how you say, oh, South Jackson used to be like this, and it's always somebody who wasn't in South Jackson, who has never been to South Jackson, never, like, crossed over, you know, 20 West and I-55, you know what I'm saying? So the perceptions are fed so much by people who aren't there, right, who don't see it, so... Um, thank you, guys. That's all really good on the perception thing. Um, all right, so we've got about 10 minutes left until we want to open it up to questions, and um, we have to shake it up a little bit and get out of our comfort zone just a little bit. Um, but we just brought up white flight, right? And um, the speaking of the every two genera- or the every generation thing, uh, the opposite or the reflective thing of that is, of course, is gentrification, right? When the generations return and come back. And you know, I, just, I was just reading this piece earlier. Or earlier this week or late last week or whatever, um, people in like my generation whose parents white flighted, is that right? Is that white, whited flighted? Something white, 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 white float? Is that how you say it? Um, so um, they should not be laughing about that. I'm sorry. But they bounced out of the city, they moved to the suburbs, and then their kids wanted to come back and live in the cities, you know, like a generation or two later. And I was just reading that millennials, however you mark that now, like whatever age group that is, but the, the study I was reading is talking about millennials want to move back out to the suburbs. So it was like, you know, people moving back in the cities, probably Gen Z or whatever I am, and then millennials. I have no idea. I can never keep up. I've been like five different letters, you know. Um, but, uh, but nevertheless, um, there's this idea, you know, again, safety and the perception of safety has such a huge effect on can a place go through, when a place goes through white flight, can it gentrify again, right? And so I think, you know, people often compare Jackson to, say, like, Brooklyn, and they're like, Jackson's just completely gentrifying, and it's like, well, there's not enough white people around for us to be gentrifying, you know what I'm saying? And that's just, that, this is the sad, you know, the fact of the matter. But for whatever pe- reason, people feel comfortable to move into, like, Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, but they don't feel comfortable to move into West Jackson here, right? So all that being said, <coughs> um, the safety's effect on white flight and gentrification I think a lot of it comes down to the crime perception, but also something we haven't really spoken to yet, um, perceptions of police within community. And that's another one of those big things where we keep seeing unarmed people being shot by police nationwide. It's more of like a national issue, but there's been a lot of that in Jackson that's not being addressed. And I just want to say that, that even our current administration, who I love, is not addressing that properly. So I just want to say that. But... What do you, like within East schools, within planning, within the neighborhoods, what do you see as people's perception of their relationship with the police? It kind of goes back to the getting back on the stoop kind of thing. Um, I think about in The Wire when McNulty was like walking the beat, right? When he came, like when he left, you know, and came back. Um, but the, for real, like I don't, I don't know any cops that I can like say, yo, what's up, sir? What, whatever your name is, right? Like I'm scared to death of them, and I'm a white male, you know what I'm saying? So. I don't know how other people perceive that. So could each one of you speak just to, within what you work in, the perception of relationships with police and safety within um, that kind of realm? And I know that's tough, but we do need to make it kind of weird here at the end. So at the planning department, one of the things that we're trying to do is have a more data-driven design approach to how we are policing. Um, So all the 911 calls that you make in... Uh, we've got to get better at creating analysis to better police 
the neighborhood. So like those 911 calls, we can be putting onto a map and creating heat maps and having a strategy behind the ways that we are policing and, and going through these neighborhoods versus just uh, so-and-so talks to so-and-so, there was something here. We've got to get more professional about that sort of stuff, um, as well as have better communication, like what you were saying. Our music venue or our building got um, vandalized or broken into three weeks ago. Uh, we got shipping, or out of our shipping containers, we got our table saws and other construction materials taken out or uh, stolen and pawned off. But there's a connection between the pawn shop and the police that's pretty interesting. Oh, yeah, um, there is definitely. Th- there definitely is that. Uh, there's p- uh, cops in there with guns that will sell you stuff. Uh, you, oh, yeah, yeah. I know, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Sorry. I just don't want to make a little side. Yeah. It, it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty funny relationship that I didn't know about until you know, something finally happened to me. Um, but I, we have developed, as, as a business owner, we have developed actually a pretty good relationship with the deputies and the people that are patrolling these neighborhoods. But you've got to understand, like, these cops, like, they're not getting paid anything. Like, you know, we have got a a serious problem. Like, you know, they're trying to hire people. 20 people just left. Um, They're working two jobs. They're working at the pawn shops, and they're working these jobs. So, I don't know, like, it's a difficult problem, and I'm I'm gonna try to just stay on planning. <laughs> I'm not gonna try to get into you know policing strategy too much, but you know they're they're really not getting paid enough to be trained the way that they need to get trained. Um, but we've got to learn how to do a lot with a little. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a very systemic problem. We were talking about that driving around the other day with the signs up around the city, like JPD is hiring right now. And I was like, man, that's bad when we got to put up signs. And my wife was like, well, it's even worse when they only pay them like $20,000 a year to get like shot at. You know what I'm saying? So um, that's a whole other conversation about their role within the community, like if if they feel valued by their pay or whatever. Um, Jennifer, would you speak to that a little bit? I just what I mean, like kind of your perception of policing within the Midtown neighborhood where you work. What do people say to you about that? you, you have people that go both ways with it. Um, for me personally, when we have our neighborhood association meetings, I invite JPD. I invite the sheriff's department. Um, I also have somebody there from constituent services. So for me, I try to give the people in this neighborhood, whether they show up or not, the opportunity to talk directly to these people. So that you can't say that you don't have that opportunity, I try to make it the best effort to give you that opportunity. You have to choose to take that opportunity and come and talk to these people or go and see them in a time when it's not, oh, somebody came and broke into my house or when something has happened, you want to go talk to them then. You need to go to the Citizens Police Academy because before I took the academy, I did have a different perception of what I saw on TV or what may have happened when they come to my door. But after going through it and seeing what the process is when, when you call into a 911 or when you go to dispatch and you hear those calls come in or if, you know, you're just, in general, you see them around the, your neighborhood or the city, you need to know the whole story. I don't think we take the time to learn people's story because we think of policing as, okay, they get robbed, they go out there and fingerprint, they've got John Doe, he gets arrested, he goes in front of a judge, it all wraps up in in a week. And it doesn't happen that way. And so when 
people get frustrated because we're in a situation or this generation is in a microwave. We want answers right now and we don't want the process. Mm -hmm. We hate the process. And so when you have to deal with the process, then you can understand where he's come from. I personally think that more officers need to live in the neighborhoods. They yes. may not patrol the neighborhood, but they need to live in more of the neighborhoods. Yeah. Same thing, I know a lot of apartment complexes allow officers to stay in there, possibly for a, a lower rate or whatever, but have um, take ownership in the neighborhood, take ownership in the city. I do appreciate the fact that they're now getting to a point, even with city with city workers, you need to live where you work. Because you cannot appreciate this town if you don't live here, if you're not invested, if you're not paying taxes here, if you don't own property here, you don't have an investment in it. That's where, um, just going back to getting out of your comfort zone, just understanding them, because you don't know what their story is when they leave that shift, because it's not a nine to five shift. It may be a seven to a seven shift. So you don't know what they go home to, just like you, they have problems. So just understanding the officer, understanding those shares, understanding those people, you may have a better respect for them and respect for their job. All of us can agree that a lot of us don't get paid what we're supposed to, yeah. but if you love the job that you're in, you will do it to the best of your ability, regardless of what they pay you. We like to get paid more, but you know, we will do it to the best of our ability, and we need to, uh, me growing up, I respected the cops. I still do respect the cops. Um, yes, there are m major issues that are happening around this country and in the city of Jackson, but at the core, I do respect what they do. They're here to protect and serve. Now, any, any job, you're going to have a bad apple, but that bad apple does not represent the entire company or the entire police department. So you have to take each situation that happens as that a situation and not reflect it over everybody. So you mentioned the Community Police Academy? Is that what it's called? Yeah, the Citizens Police, Citizens Academy. police Academy. They yeah. have it twice a year. I've heard nothing but good stuff about that. Um, they just had one that graduated, I want to say, this week. Okay. Um, but it's an opportunity for citizens. It's free. Um, you take one week out, and you are giving tours of the police department, the different divisions. You are able to ride along with the police officer. You are able to go to the firing range, um, I think it's on a Saturday, and you graduate that following Monday. But you get the overall look at the police department. Um, I don't quite know if they have one for the sheriff's department, I'm not sure, but I know that the city of Jackson does yeah. have one. And it's an opportunity to just understand where they're coming from. And and when I had that experience, I respected it more because I understood what happens behind the scenes. Right. That's what's up. All right, um, Anna, for the last here, do you uh, have anything to say? You mentioned you stay on the west side of Fondren. and yes. So I'm on Next Door, which is just a cesspool of craziness, right? <laughs> don't, um, don't, don't get on Next Door. I don't know if anyone has No, don't get on it, but if you're already on it, you know, it's so much fun. You know, like, you know when your tooth hurts and you're just like, ow, 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 and you can't quit, like, hitting it? You know what I'm saying? That's the way Next Door is. So from an entertainment standpoint, it's also really scary. You see a whole lot of, like, scary mm, stuff yes. on there. So I just want to ask... Being on being in Fondren on the west side, um, what's the police presence like there? Over there, do you guys have like community policemen that you are like that you know within like working the beat and stuff like that? 
We do to a certain extent. I think that we use and abuse our relationship with Commander McGowan with Precinct 4 because he will answer every question. I I called him on his cell phone to ask him every random question I can think of sometimes. Um, The street that I live on is a thoroughfare between State and West Street. To to say that we have a lot of police activity would probably be an understatement because there's just a lot of activity on our street. Um, And... I'm going to bring this back to schools real quick. Just just to say, from my own experience uh, living there for such a long time, I've had several situations that have concerned me about uh, the police prejudice against our community. Mm-hmm. We've had we had a break in a few years ago, and I said, you know, I saw these two guys walking down the street, and they did look a little bit funny, but it was three o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, the officer said, well, why didn't you call it in? And I said, well, they were just walking down the street. Should I call you every time a black man walks down the street? And they said, yes, yes, please call us every time. Maybe next and door I is thought, right. No, I no. don't think I'll do that. And conversations with officers about how um, they feel a bit hindered in, in being able to uh, police our schools and that, that some kids are just trouble. I think you need to take into account the fact that we have an issue with bias with our police force, yes. nationally and locally. Um, and when you take people with a certain amount of power and that bias and you put them in buildings with the 27,000 children who got on the bus to come to school to learn that day, regardless of the issues within that school, um, those people are coming in at an unfair advantage over those children. And until we can fix the situation that we have with our police force, I don't think that they need to be in our school buildings. That's what's Um, up. And I think that we absolutely need to find a way to open up some lines of communication with the police force about them spreading those perceptions. You shouldn't walk up to a white woman and say, you should be afraid every time a black man walks down the street. And there should probably be some training involved in becoming a police officer in how to improve that perception. Very good. Thank you. All right, so we're about to open it up to questions from you guys, but just to lighten the mood before we do that, before we started this, our friend from across the street was over here, and he was like, what are you guys doing? I was like, we're doing this panel on safety. He said, what do you mean, like wearing helmets when you ride bikes or like not running with scissors? So I want to ask each of you real quick, what is your opinion on running with scissors? Starting with you, Anna. What's your opinion on running with scissors? I have three boys. Um, Run fast so I can't catch you. Very good. I like that. Travis? I've, I've given a lot of thought to this, but um, Salam, my, my fiance, threw a pair of scissors to me the other day when I was on a 20-foot uh, step ladder, and I, you know, thought about it, and I was like, aren't we not supposed to be doing this? At least you weren't running with yeah. them. Nobody but, said anything about throwing. I mean, throwing scissors, yeah. I don't know. And Jennifer, throw, running with scissors, or throwing scissors, now that we've breached that topic. Just don't do it. Like Nancy Ray just say no. <laughs> just say no to running um, with scissors. You're awesome. deal with the consequences either way it goes. Right. So just say no. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> we appreciate it. All right. So for our last uh, 10 or 15 minutes here, I'd like to open it up to questions, which we'll just kind of do randomly if you want to throw your hand up if you have a question. Hey, what's up? Um, I will uh, have you direct your question to the panel. So who's got a question? 
So how do we get the media to celebrate the diversity of Jackson as opposed to the negative things? Is that the gist of what you're asking? Yes. Yeah. Um, so what he's working off of is Jackson is a very diverse place. Now, demographically, maybe not so much, just based on the numbers, like if you look racially or whatever. But um, I think in ideas and types of people and events and things like that, I think that's what you're getting at, right? Yeah. yeah. Right, uh, no doubt. So and we're history. What's that? History. History, of course. Yeah, yeah. So we have just a few minutes left. So I'd like each one of you, um, Anna. Let's start with you, since you didn't speak on that last one. Just give me a minute or two on how you think the media can celebrate the diversity of Jackson better than it does, as opposed to celebrating just the negative perceptions. Back to the perception thing again. Yeah. I think it would be. Uh, <sighs> Hmm, this is a hard one. Okay. I think it's very important for us to change our perception of the media. And because of uh, what's happening in our, our nation and our world and our state, we've come to believe that uh, the media has an enormous amount of control in, in what happens and in the outcomes of what we're doing within our communities. Uh, unfortunately, in Jackson, I think you would just be chasing your tail in circles trying to get the media to change the perception of the people. The media is, is absolutely not going to be um, the leading force in changing the perception in Jackson. We're going to have to simply uh, continue on and continue working in Jackson and changing Jackson and making it better and better. And the media will perk up eventually. Um, but I don't think I don't think a media campaign to change perception is going to help JPS. I don't think it's going to help the city because uh, unfortunately they fall short too often and they are too harmful to be relied on as an ally. All right, hot take, hot take one. All right, I like it. I like. It. I don't think I can speak to the media perception thing because it's just there's so many systemic things. But I can say that. Jackson is super culturally rich and it's going to be way more culturally rich than any of these suburban areas because of the history and the age of it and the stories that exist in these neighborhoods and I I just hope that we you know continue to see the value in that and I think that maybe over time the the media will see the value of that and see just the diversity of culture that uh, is exploding in these neighborhoods as people continue to invest. I will touch on your downtown thing real quick. Uh, the reason why downtown is the safest census track in the state is because no one, there's nothing that no one lives there, and there's no uh, commercial businesses that occupy that at night, um, other than like, um, you know, several, I guess. Um, but it, it's just like sort of a dead zone. We have this joke calling it like the downtown dead zone. Um, uh, and, and it's just simply, I think, because of the housing situation that's downtown and, like, the business activity as well. To be fair, the housing has picked up over the last decade. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So that, that, that idea of it being the safest is going to track longer, I think. But, yeah, I mean, it's a demographic thing at this point, just to be yeah, where people are based. Jennifer, go ahead. Um, I guess for me is starting with yourself. In this room right now, we have how many cell phones up? we're being streamed by cell phone. I think we have to take that initiative to change it. We have uh, Jackson State's University's channel. You can use that. The city has channels. Use those. 
JPS has a channel. Use those. There are very um, socialites um, in this city that do different things, whether it be with dealing with cooking style, uh, community involvement. Get those people involved in changing the narrative and not always depend on the news to do it. That is the biggest thing of the 21st century is our cell phones to be able to change. We sit on YouTube and make videos for different things. We sit on Facebook and talk about everything else. You can do it in your home by yourself and with a group of people. I think that we tend to always look to a singular person to change what we want to see change. But there are so many people that are, are, are unsung underdogs that are doing the work in the neighborhoods that don't get that 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 uh, 15 minutes of fame sometimes, and some of them don't want it. But at least the the what's happening is is being done by them. Ultimately, those are different outlets that you can use, and there are probably more. There are podcasts out there. There are different areas that you can do that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go to Channel 6, Channel 12, other channels to get the perception of the city to change or your neighborhoods to change. If you want it to change and if it's and if it's something that people like, it will spread just like gossip, good gossip and bad gossip. Those things can change based on what you do yourself. Um, very good. Thanks, guys. So that's our time. I just want to wrap it up real quick and say the thing with the media is that it's so decentralized now. You spoke to like this system, this systemic aspect of it. Um, go to Clarion Ledger. Nobody works at the Clarion Ledger anymore, right? Because like the USA Today owns it, and there's like however many people working there, and there's not local reporters. And so where there used to be, when I was growing up, there'd be like five or six people out in the community reporting on things going on. Now there's one trying to handle a whole week's worth of stuff, and they just can't do it. And then the social media thing, and just to bring it back, each one of you said something tonight that I want everyone to think about out there um, in the crowd. Each one of you at different points said we have to have conversations within our community, with the police, with the schools, with our neighborhood, with the people down the street from us, right? Um, and that, I think, affects the way, because you're completely right, it's about social media now. And what I've learned is that instead of using that for positive, we'd rather post World Star videos, right? We'd rather post, you mentioned somebody fighting and being on video. I'm to Forest Hill in the 90s, there was a fight every day. But every no day. one knew about it because it wasn't, we weren't recording it on anything. We were hiding our pagers underneath the desk. We, <laughs> we didn't have phones, you know what I'm saying? So point being is that I think with the media being decentralized the way it is we have to continue to have these conversations within our communities uncomfortable conversations and realizing how we have so much to do with the way that things are perceived be it through social media um, be it through events like this you bringing people out to events and things like that so um, I know we aren't going to answer the question about safety in an hour but it was a really good conversation you guys give it up for our panelists um, Anna Travis and Jennifer thank you guys so much This program took place as our new summer series, Ideas on Tour, where we're visiting different venues all around Jackson throughout the summer. So catch us the next time on July 31st at the Flamingo and Fondren. Ideas on Tap is recorded in front of a live local audience and held once a month at Howlin' Mouths in Jackson, Mississippi. This podcast is produced by Pottery Studios and brought to you by the Mississippi Humanities Council. For more information on Ideas on Tap, please visit mshumanities.org.